Welcome to Mercy Hill. I'm going to get us right in, uh, as is pretty typical. I have a lot for us. So, um, you might have noticed in the handout there that I'm not in Luke this morning, um, per se. It's this message kind of inspired by what we've been dealing with in Luke, uh, the first two chapters. Last week, we, we came out of, uh, in fact, maybe I should have the ushers bring Bibles now, but I'm, I'm going to, before we read the text, I'm going to give us a few words of introduction. So if you do need a Bible, um, raise your hands, the ushers will come by. <clears throat> and you could keep it if you don't have one or if you want to give it away. But we've been, in, we've been in Luke's Gospel. We've now finished two chapters. Uh, those first two chapters in Luke are what uh, most scholars refer to as the infancy narrative. Um, but if, if I were to kind of try to distill uh, down to a single word what those two chapters have been about, uh, what we've been focusing on, uh, I don't think anyone would argue with me if I... If I chose the word incarnation, the first two chapters, uh, this infancy narrative is, is all about the incarnation. It's about God, the wonder, the mystery, the awesome reality that God became man. He took on flesh. He came into carn, into flesh. He came into humanity to rescue us. And we've been there for eight months. We've been meditating. I did the math. We've been meditating on the incarnation in those first two chapters of Luke now for eight months. And before proceeding into chapter three and moving on in his gospel, I, I thought it would be great to step back for a moment. And just reflect on all that we've kind of taken in. I actually want to draw lines here this morning for us in in this sermon from the incarnation that we've witnessed into yours and my life. I want to get some implications going. I want to get some lines being drawn uh, more crisply, sharply, you could say, from what we've seen in Luke 1 and 2 in the incarnation and our lives as a church. What does Christ's incarnation mean for us? <clears throat> I feel we've sufficiently dealt with uh, the lines from the incarnation of Christ that kind of move towards our redemption. I, I've dealt with this in uh, in the implications of his incarnation. Uh, uh, toward, for our redemption in at large, I think. And what I mean by that is this. We have looked at how Christ came to save us. That He came uh, to fulfill all righteousness, both in His life and His death, and in His death, uh, to kind of save His people, to redeem us as His people. We've looked at that at large. I feel we've sufficiently covered it. But there's another line we could draw that I feel I have not done uh, so much of up to this point. And it's what I might call uh, a line of, uh, towards man's renovation. So we have lines we could draw from the incarnation that move towards our redemption. We have lines we could draw from the incarnation that move towards our renovation. Here's what I mean. I assume I'm confusing you at this point. 
When the eternal Son of God takes on flesh, when He incarnates, He does not do it merely with a view to man's redemption. He does it also and especially with a view to man's renovation, to renew, to remake, to rewire, to renovate man from the inside out. To put it another way, the gospel isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card. He doesn't just redeem us and set us free. We're out of jail. He actually gets the jail out of me. Does that make sense? I'm not just out of jail to do what I want and keep on sinning, no big deal. He, he, he sets me free from prison so that I might be set free from sin on the inside. Renovation. This is something we have not necessarily dealt with as much as I had wanted um, in looking at those first two chapters of Luke. And what this means, then, is that this kind of line I'm talking about of renovation, it brings into view the fact that Christ is not merely our Savior, but He is also our example, our exemplar, you could say, the prime example. He is not only, He's not only come to redeem humanity, He has come actually as the perfect expression of humanity. So when we are looking at Him in His incarnation, these first two chapters, we are actually looking not only at what saves the church, but what the church ought to be like. We ought to look like this man. We ought to look like the incarnation. Because we have an incarnational Christ, we ought to be an incarnational church. Redemption unto renovation. And that renovation looks like Jesus. We are being renovated into His image. Therefore, in the first two chapters of Luke, we learn we are to be incarnational. This is why when Paul and others are trying to tell the church what they must do, what they must be like. You want to know where they go? Sometimes? Many times? The incarnation. They say, you see Him there? You see your Savior there? You see the perfect expression of humanity in Him? You look like that. You see His humility, His condescension, His love how He empties Himself for others. Look like Him. <clears throat> the exhortation that the apostles and others give to the church, what you ought to be off at grounds in the Messiah and what He was, in particular in His incarnation. Probably uh, the preeminent example of this is Philippians 2. 1 through 11, which is why that's the text I chose for us this morning to kind of reflect upon all this with you. Uh, you can turn to Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and hopefully as we read it, you'll see what I'm talking about. We are an incarnational church because we have an incarnational Christ. Let me read it, we'll pray. 
<clears throat> and then get going. Verse 1 of Philippians 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, and here we go, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, your story is the church's story by the Spirit. Not only do we stand amazed at your love, at your grace, at your humility, that you would give it all up to come down and die and save your enemies. We also stand amazed that you call us and equip us and enable us to follow after your example. (coughs) That true freedom, true salvation is conformity to your image. The image that was marred in Adam is being renewed in Christ the image of God we have a God whose love whose grace whose mercy heart is vaster and deeper than the oceans higher than the heavens And you call us to swim there. You call us to fly there. You call us to participate in that kind of life. God, please, don't let, don't let the words we're about to explore and investigate together get stopped up in the mind. And just become thoughts and things to argue about, disagree with, hold truly, but nothing else. God, as you move 
with your words through our minds, would you please draw these things down into our hearts? I do believe, I do believe that you accompany the going forth, the proclaiming of your word with the power of your spirit. And in the, the, the combination of those two elements, new creation erupts. In the beginning, God said, let there be light in the spirit hovering over the face of the deep, brought it forth. Your word and spirit be present with us here today in that powerful, new creative sort of way. And make us, God, by your grace, an incarnational church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the basic structure of this text, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is going to serve as, as the outline for this sermon. Um, taken generally, we can divide the text into two parts. Okay? First, the incarnational church. That's verses 1 through 5a. And when I say a, I just mean the first part of verse 5. And then secondly, we see the incarnational Christ. And that's verses 5b to 11. The incarnational church and the incarnational Christ. The first heading deals with what the church ought to be. The second heading deals with why the church ought to be such a thing and how we can actually get there. So let's get into that. First, the incarnational church, verses 1 through 5a. As we move into verse 1, we must recognize that Paul is, is speaking rhetorically here, and I get that it's a little bit confusing when you look at it. So if there is, and if there is, and if there is any encouragement and any love and all this, he's speaking rhetorically. What he means to say is this. Since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. It ought to evidence itself in the qualities that follow in verses 2 through 4. So since there is, this is what you ought to look like, verses 2 through 4. We're of the same mind. We have the same love. We're in full accord with one another. We're doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we're counting others more significant than ourselves. We're looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. The basic movement of this first part is what I've been mentioning, uh, this idea of, of redemption to renovation. Because in verse 1, what we see is we have participated, we have benefited from the redemptive accomplishments of Jesus Christ. That's the idea there in verse 1. We know His encouragement. We know His love. We participate in His Spirit. There's a fellowship with Him. We have His sympathy and kindness. And because the Gospel comes to us and we experience these things in our redemption, the move that Paul makes from that point is, therefore, you ought to start looking like that. The Gospel that you believe in, the Gospel that you proclaim 
is also the gospel that you ought to manifest in your lives. It's the move from redemption to renovation, redeemed so that we can be renovated, conformed into the image of our Redeemer. If you read Luke 1 through 2, in other words, and you know this Jesus, you know the one who's come to, and, 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 and takes up residence in an animal trough, who leaves all glory to come down. You know this Jesus in Luke 1 and 2? Guess what? It's going to change you. If you really know Him, if He's really captured your heart, it's going to change you. You're going to find yourself not wanting to come over your wife at home or your kids at home or whatever it is. You're going to find yourself suddenly wanting to come under like He came under to serve you. I'm not going to deal with these qualities uh, in verses 2 through 4 in particular here um, all that much since they're actually grounded in the exemplar that we're going to spend a lot of time in in verses 5b through 11. But I just kind of gave you the basic sense even there in English and especially in Greek. Here's the, here's the clear uh, sense that, that Paul is giving us what we ought to be like. We ought to be going low. We gotta be going low. We're a people going low, coming under others to lift them up. In other words, we gotta be incarnational. Coming into the story of another to bless. Now, uh, I don't want to transition into the second heading, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. I don't want to transition there yet uh, before dealing with verse 5 as a whole. Verse 5 um, is essentially the hinge upon which this, this whole text uh, turns. It's the link. It is the link between the incarnational church and the incarnational Christ. And we read it here in full. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Church, have this mind. And it's yours because of your Christ. Because of who you follow. Because of who you are in. We can have the mind of Christ because of our union with Christ. It's the basic idea. Stick with me in this thought for a moment. We must never divorce renovation from redemption. Here's what I mean. When we call Christ our example... When we, when, we, when we say, hey, look at Him, look at His love, look at His humility, now follow that, we do not mean to imply that we follow behind Him in our own strength. No way. That's not going to happen. Good luck trying to be like Jesus without Jesus. It's not going to happen. Redemption precedes renovation. That's why I opened the way that I did. He redeems us. He gets inside of us and then starts to change us and conform us. It's His work. It's not us trying to follow after His example in our own strength, but Him saving us, coming in, and conforming us to His image. We have this mind because we are in Christ. 
We have access to this kind of lifestyle, this kind of power, the power of self-sacrifice that requires so much more strength than self-indulgence. It's so much harder to tell yourself no. And you need the Spirit of Christ to do it. This actually is the whole burden of the, the Lucan corpus, the, 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 the works of Luke, Luke-Acts. The whole burden of Luke and Acts is actually this movement. Christ's redemption, Christ's renovation of His church. The Gospel of Luke is Christ's life as a man. That's what we're going to see as we follow through. But the book of Acts is Christ's life in men. <laughs> you get that? The book, the, the Gospel of Luke is Christ's life as a man. We are watching Him move. And it's amazing. The book of Acts is Christ's life in men. He comes in and starts to live that same story out now through His church, through you and I. And the parallels are astounding, but... Let me show you just one uh, evidence for, for what I'm saying here so you don't think I'm making it up. It's the reason why Luke opens the book of Acts the way that he does. This is the first verse of the book of Acts, chapter 1. In the first book, referring to the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Did you hear that? In the first book, the Gospel of Luke... I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, in now, Theophilus, this book of Acts, I am going to deal with all that Jesus continues to do and teach. Only now, it is in and through His Spirit, in and through His church, by His Spirit. That's why Jesus, before the ascension, says what to His, His church? Don't you go anywhere. Don't you go anywhere until I come into you so that then we can start to do and teach me in you the life of Christ as a man the life of Christ in men have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus we can be the incarnational church because we have union with the incarnational Christ by His Spirit. That's where we go. We don't go to, to, to self kind of strength and reliance here. We just fall down at our incarnate Lord and say, help us do what we can't do in ourselves. Now, second heading, the incarnational Christ. I dealt briefly with the Incarnational Church. I want to move into this second part where I'm going to kind of continue to deal with both. But the Incarnational Christ, verses 5b through 11, there in Philippians 2. We move now to look at our exemplar, at the one, at the one um, to whom we are being conformed. He is the pattern. He is the prime example of what we, as a church, as individuals, as followers of Christ, ought to look like. And what's interesting, and Paul just lays it out so beautifully here, 
he just he just throws a softball pitch for us to kind of understand what he's trying to say. He basically walks us through, if you notice, the the historical life broadly conceived of our Savior. He walks us through in these verses. If you notice, verse six through seven, what is it? The incarnation of Christ. And what is it in verse eight? The crucifixion. And then what is it in verses 9 through 11? The resurrection. The whole life of Christ patterned for us now here. And he's saying, look, you ought to have the mind that he had. And you can have it by his spirit. So let's follow the, the incarnational Christ. And I'm going to continue to draw lines towards us that we might be an incarnational church. We're going to take... Each of those elements I I showed you there, one at a time, beginning with verses 6 through 7 in the Incarnation. As you look at those two verses, there are really two poles, you could say, that hold together Paul's thought here. Um, And they're given to us in the parallel language used to describe the Son. Paul tries to make it clear where he's going here, and I'll show you these two poles I'm talking about. Verse 6a is, Jesus was in the form of God. Form of God. But then, in verse 7, in kind of the middle there, he is, he takes on the form of a servant. Form of God, form of a servant. When these two forms come into view, at that point, we kind of see the essence of Paul's thinking here, and we also see the essence of the incarnation. The incarnation really could be summed up in this way. It is, it is, it is the, the, the one who was in the form of God taking on the form of a servant. One lofty and high coming low. That is the essence of the incarnation. Before we can comprehend, Paul knows, the depth of Jesus' love and grace for us in the incarnation, that He came to take on the form of a servant, we must comprehend the height of His glory and stature in His pre-incarnate state, that He was in the form of God. If we are to comprehend the, the, the magnitude of this love, of this humility, We must know not only how low he went, but from how high he has come. So consider this with me for a moment, because it it might not be abundantly clear to the casual reader of Luke's gospel, the the profundity of what we're actually witnessing in in chapters 1 and 2. He doesn't go like we looked at last week. He doesn't do what John does in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't go there. In, 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 in Luke doesn't go there. And so we might miss from where He has come. We might miss the, the awe and the wonder of what we are actually witnessing when He comes uh, into humanity. But Paul will not let us miss This fact, he was in the form of God. The meaning here, 
To put it simply, though there has been so much debate, I almost feel blasphemous even just making it simple, but it is. (laughs) The meaning is, he was God. And he enjoyed, he enjoyed the privileges, he enjoyed the glories, the riches, the rights of all that naturally is entailed in being God. They were all his. He was God for all of eternity past. This is why John 17:5 Jesus could speak like this to his father. The glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's a glory I had with you, Father, before the world existed. In Paul's language, that's he was in the form of God. Jesus was with the Father in glory from all eternity. Before there was ever a Son of God in the flesh, there was a Son of God with the Father in glory. And the burden of Paul in this text is not to kind of linger and camp out there, although that's amazing, but the fact that he left it. He left that for us. He left it all. In between the two poles that I gave us, form of God, form of a servant, we have two supplementary phrases that kind of elaborate on the son's move from form of God to form of a servant. You see it there uh, in verses 6 and 7, kind of the middle of it. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself. To sum up what I think he's saying here is that he did not hold on to that which was properly his. He had every right to the claims of Godhood, to all that comes with it, the riches and the glory. He had every right to lay claim to that for Himself, but He did not consider it a thing to be grasped or held onto. Instead, He let it go. He made Himself nothing. He emptied Himself into the form of a servant. He took that on instead. Though He could have come with robes... (laughs) that even the world couldn't contain, long and majestic. He came and tied around Himself the cloth of a servant and washed our feet. That's where He goes. For us. To serve us. And as we proceed through Luke's Gospel, this is what we're going to see. I mean, this is all that we're going to witness is is form of God taking on the form of a servant. As We're just going to watch Him walk and, and heal the sick. The people that are hurting. We're going to watch Him cast out demons with a word. We're going to watch Him feed the hungry, comfort the anxious. We're going to watch Him just kind of sit there and eat with the outcast and the loser. We're going to watch Him forgive sinners. We are going to watch Him come to serve us. But we ought not forget where He has come from, you see. Form of God. Every right 
inherent with that position His. And He let it all go to serve us. There is, there is honestly no way, there is no way to comprehend this. I said before that if we're to, if we're to measure, if we're to comprehend the, the vastness of this love, we have to know not only how low he's gone, but how high. Well, guess what? He's infinitely high. He's, he's eternally, he's eternally existent. There is no way to measure this kind of, this kind of love as he would go down for us. The best I can do is, is, is analogies and they fall far short, but consider this with me. The incarnation is like the sun. Not the S-O-N, but the S-U-N, the burning sun, surrendering its glory to become a candle that it might light the way for a man. It's like the Pacific Ocean surrendering its majesty to become a glass of water that it might refresh the thirst of a man. It's like the mighty Everest surrendering its place at the top of the world to become a mere foundation slab upon which a man can build a home for his family. The great, majestic, eternal, infinite coming into nothing to serve. See, even these analogies don't work because it's not just a nice guy who just kind of is kind of hard pressed for his pressed for his luck or whatever. It's actually his enemies that he's doing this for. You can you can you can lop off Mount Everest so I build a house on me so that I can be close to my enemies. I mean, there's just no way. There's no way of capturing what we are witnessing in Luke chapters one and two and the move down in the incarnation of the Son. Form of God to form of a servant. Now get ready. Because Paul says to the church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Even when I was writing this, this outline, I lost my breath at that point. Because there's just, there's just no way for us to even come close to the sacrifice and the, the level of servitude. There's just nothing I could even do in my life that could come close to what He has done for me. I could give my life over to death now and it would be nothing compared to what He has done. And yet I, I grumble about the littlest, littlest acts of incarnational love. And it seems so hard for me. And he's saying, have this mind. I'm going, what? He's saying, it's your mind in Christ. He's there to help you look more and more like Him. What might this look like in your life? I, I, you know, as I was thinking about it, illustrations or examples, actually there's a number of them that might be helpful for us right here in Philippians. If you just read around the text a bit, I'll only pick out a couple and I don't have time for much uh, meditation on it, but consider. Paul, for example, just a few verses later, 
is an illustration of this kind of life. When he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Do you hear that? My life is being poured out. My life is being spent. I am giving it all up to come under and serve you. And I'm grumbling about it? No. I love it. I am glad and I rejoice because I, I, mean, I am walking as humanity ought to walk after the image of its Creator and Redeemer. Consider Epaphroditus, a brother from the Philippian church who was sent to Paul. And we read this in verses 25 through 27 of chapter 2. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Here's the reason. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. Now, you might not immediately catch what's going on here, but here's, this blew me away. Here's the basic sense. Epaphroditus is so sick that he's dying. But he's worried not about himself in those moments, but about the, but about the Philippians because they heard that he's sick and dying, and he's worried it's stressing them out. He wants them to be comforted, to know, listen, don't think that God's abandoning me. Don't think that God's abandoning you. Don't question God's goodness. I'm worried about you when you hear that I'm sick and dying. I thought, wow, man, that is amazing. I'll tell you something. When Megan was driving me to the ER, and I was having an asthma attack, and my face is turning blue, was she stressed out? Yes. Was I worried about her? No. Not at all. In fact, I made her go to the, the hospital that they, our insurance would actually cover. She wanted to go to a closer one. I'm, I got this. Oh, you know, she's stressing out. I'm trying to breathe. But the amazing thing about these brothers that have been, that have been captured by the incarnation of their Christ is that they start to become incarnational themselves. And even when they're sick, it's not, it's not now time for self-pity. It's now time still to be concerned about others and how they're going to perceive their sickness. It's amazing. So what about us? Is there an incarnational impulse in us? Are we moving in that direction? Is our impulse to, to come under and serve as a servant or is it to come over others as master? I mean, that's often where I go, and I'm looking at my Savior here, and I'm saying, oh man, I want your mind. I have that mind, that heart in Christ. Jesus, please conform me more to it. It's the incarnation in uh, verses 6 and 7. Now we move even lower with the Son into the crucifixion of verse 8. As we read through Luke's Gospel, illustrations of the servitude of the Son, 
like I said, are going to abound. But we will follow all those illustrations and, and we will find that they are all essentially like tributaries flowing, flowing downstream, flowing downhill to one final destination, the lowest point of all, namely his death on a cross. Verse 8, Philippians 2, says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. As you read this text and you... I mean, there's a real... I want you to read your Bibles carefully, you know? Because I wonder sometimes... We could just kind of move right through, but I, I wonder if you see what I'm seeing here when you just stop and you enter into these few verses... What Paul is laying before us is a descending staircase for the Son of God. I want you to see this. He starts in the form of God. But he steps down, first step, into humanity. But not just any humanity. God could have come into flesh and been the coolest thing you know, on the planet. And drawn everyone to himself because he was so strong and powerful. Might No, he doesn't take on that kind of flesh, that kind of humanity. He takes on the form of a servant. So God comes into humanity, first step. But not at just any humanity, servant. There he goes, another step. But not just any servant. Not just any servant. A suffering servant. One who will be obedient to the point of death. There's another step down, but not just any death. Paul says, even death on a cross. I was reading in the ESV study Bible, and you know what? I cut it out of my outline because I was worried it was going to be too long. I'm just going to read it to you here. This is amazing. Listen to this. Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity. A public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. He didn't just die peacefully in his bed. He died on a cross. Utter shame. The absolute destruction of a person. Under the wrath of God. The descending staircase down into death. And He did it for us. He's dying in my place for my sin. Our focus in Luke 1 and 2 has been on the incarnation. Because He's just coming, right? But I wonder if we realize that the incarnation actually presupposes the crucifixion. 
while the crucifixion may follow the incarnation with reference to his earthly life in terms of time, historical outworking in his earthly life. It actually precedes the incarnation with reference to his agreement and plan with the Father. This is why Paul, or I'm sorry, John would write this in Revelation 13, 8. He speaks of Jesus as the Lamb who was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. What I mean to say (laughs) is this. The Son knows He was sent to die. That when He took on flesh, incarnation, it was with being slain in view. Crucifixion. He did not come as an immigrant, if you will, from like some troubled land hoping for a better life. Here. He actually left the best life possible in glory with the Father to come down so that we sinners could be brought into that kind of a life. He's not coming here looking. The crucifixion wasn't a surprise. The crucifixion was the plan. And because He was surrendered to the will of His Father, ready to die for His people, He comes into flesh. Sent on that mission. And fulfills it. And to the church, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I want to ask, does our incarnation presuppose our crucifixion? I realize I'm maybe speaking in a way that's opaque, but what I mean is this. Are we dead? Have we died with Christ? Are we continually putting to death the deeds of the body so that we can move with incarnational love for others? Getting this? We understand this, I think, even though I might be putting it in a way that's not as simply understood. We understand this idea that the crucifixion actually precedes the incarnation in heart, if not in time. Because what it makes incarnation in our lives so hard What makes it so hard to move towards the needy, to move towards the broken, to move towards the enemy, or just to move towards your spouse or your friend or your neighbor or your coworker? What makes it so hard to get into another story, come under and lift them up towards the Savior? What makes that so hard? Is it not this? I'm still alive. And I love my life. I love my plans, my ideas. And I don't, I mean, getting in your life messes my stuff up. If I'm gonna get in your life and do that sort of incarnational work, I gotta be dead. I gotta die to myself. You see, you see what I'm saying here? We, we have no idea the joy that we keep ourselves from because we're trying so desperately to stay alive. I'm doing it myself all the time. That's my wife. I've no idea. The thought occurred to me. The image. It's just. It's like. It's like we're these 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 men just kind of thrashing about on the surface of 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 the sea, trying desperately to stay alive. Okay, get one more breath. 
So we're here, and we don't realize that if we would just go down the waters of baptism, the waters of the grave, die with Christ, under that water is a world of glory. It's not scary down there. It's better. (laughs) As we move through our death, we actually come into truest life. And we could start to move towards others like Christ has moved towards us. The final element in Christ's life is the resurrection. Verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2. The son's story doesn't end with his descent into death. We read there, the first part of verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And here's what I'm seeing, and this is what makes it so amazing when you read carefully. It says, if the descending staircase that the Son was called to walk down to death, even death on a cross under the Father's wrath, it says, if that descending staircase in His resurrection, the Father kind of flips it on its head, and the way down was shown to truly be the way up. And the deepest darkest moments of the Savior's shame are made the highest, brightest moments of His glory. The Son could live with such reckless abandon. Jesus could live with such reckless abandon coming into everyone else's story, serving everyone else because he trusted his Father and he knew his Father would be there for him in the end. And it would all be to his glory. I mean, do you remember that text? I don't have it. But uh, in John's Gospel, when he's recording the, the Passover and the washing of the feet, and he says, listen, Because Jesus knew where he was going, that he was going to be with the Father, because he knew what awaited him on the other side of death, is that he was able to take up that kind of cloth and wash the feet of his disciples. He was able to be the lowest servant because he knew, my daddy's got my back. I don't have to worry and keep myself in order and keep myself together and get All my needs squared away. My dad's got that. He knows what I need before I ask him. Therefore, I can worry about your needs. And he's doing that all the way to the cross. It's incredible. I mean, healing the guy that that, that Peter, you know, lops off his ear. I'll I'll hear your ear, brother. I know you need to hear. Or caring for Mary right there on the cross. John, take my mom and take care of her. Or worried about about the, the leaders and the people that are crucifying Him. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Or the thief on the cross next to Him. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I mean, He is so others focused because He knows, my daddy, He will exalt me in the end. He's got my back. To the church, Paul says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
we have to admit that we're often kept from incarnational love for others because we kind of have this fundamental uncertainty about whether God will really be there for us in the end. Whether He'll really take care of us. If we just let it all go, is He really going to be there and make this thing work? Am I really going to find life on the bottom of that ocean floor and glory? Or is it just death down there? We're not sure. And so we cannot live the incarnational life. It's, it's got to be still focused on us. Our career, our finances, our retirement, our, our relationships, our health, whatever it is. It's, I gotta worry about me. I'm so busy worrying about me. I cannot worry about you. I'm sorry. And, 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 and Jesus, listen to this. If, if you're there and I'm there, Jesus would speak to his anxious little sheep this way. Luke 12, 32 to 33. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Translation, go crazy with incarnational, crucifixional love, church. Your daddy's got your back. You give to the needy. You just give, up, give it all up. You, can't, you, cannot, you cannot come close <laughs> to equaling what the Son has done for you. Just start giving it away. Go crazy is what he's saying here. You will not regret a single penny you gave to another, but oh, how on that day we will bemoan the pennies we withheld. He's saying the resurrection is coming. Live like that is for real. You believe in that? I will take care of you. Nick, why are you penny pinching over every little issue in the home or in the church? Give it away. I'm going to close by reading you a quote from B.B. Warfield um, as he reflects profoundly on this text. This is awesome. I thought about bringing the whole little kind of exposition article that he wrote. Uh, I'll, I'll probably make that available on our Facebook page so you can link to it. But here is uh, how I wanted to end. He, Jesus, was led by His love for others into the world to forget Himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, His followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. 
It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. It is, after all, then, the path to the highest possible development by which alone we can be made truly men. Only when we humbly walk this path, seeking truly in it, not our own things, but those of others, we shall find the promise true that he who loses his life shall find it. Only when, like Christ and in loving obedience to his call and example, we take no account of ourselves, but freely give ourselves to others, we shall find each in his measure the saying true of himself also. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him. The path of self-sacrifice is the path to glory. There's one sentence there I just wanted to read again because it is the sentence that in many ways inspired this whole sermon. It's why I titled it the way that I did. Warfield says this, it means the incarnation, this kind of life, it means that we should live not just one life, but a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. We start moving towards other people to such a degree that we start living their lives, if you will. When they rejoice, we rejoice. When they weep, we weep. So I thought about this. To live one life is just so cliche, you guys. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's living one life. Get up, worry about me. Go to work, worry about me. Come home, worry about me. Take care of me. Me, me. One life. So boring. We have before us a father who said, I got your back. You start living a thousand lives. Just move into others. Live a thousand lives. You have an incarnational Christ. Let's be the incarnational church. Amen. May God do that in our midst. Because we have His Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You. I have put before us, You have put before us, so high a call. (laughs) I am asking You, Jesus, please show each individual here what this looks like in their life. Moment by moment, would you help us to die to ourselves so we can incarnate in love for others? Jesus, would you help us to trust you? You got us so we can give ourselves away. Oh Lord, make this a reality in our midst. Not just ideas in our head, but things that we start to see walked out by our feet. In your name we pray, amen.